The Guardian. Hello, this is Media Talk. I'm Hugh Muir. On today's podcast, from Uncle Rupert to Auntie BBC, James Harding becomes the top newsman at the BBC. What can we expect from the former editor of the Murdoch Times now that he's switched camps? And there's more BBC, John Sweeney and that panorama in North Korea. Some tough calls for the new Director General. And in the US, as the public radio stations this week end their annual pledge drives, we speak to the producer behind one of the most successful podcast whip rounds of all time. Who knows, he might be able to help us out here at Media Talk. All that and more, stay with us. And with me in the studio today, we have Media Guardians Lisa O'Carroll and Maggie Brown. Start with you, Lisa. What have you been up to this week? Quite a lot of Thatcher stuff, which I managed to avoid um, writing anything about, which is quite good, but it was enjoyable looking at the newspapers. She didn't Um, like us. She didn't like the media very much anyway, did she? So any media line would have been fairly caustic. She, uh, you mean the Guardian in particular? Well, I think she, probably we weren't her favourites. Yeah, but it was quite interesting to see how the newspapers played it out. I loved the Daily Mail. It's a really mean photograph on Carol Thatcher this morning. The close-up, she looks like Dennis. They've been nice for a day. Nice for a day. And then you open it up and you see the double-page spread of the photographs of the crematorium. You wonder, is this an invasion of privacy? And then there's a little note saying that they got permission from the family. But I'm not sure if they got permission from the family to, to, to do that yeah. quite so far <laughs> in. Because the other papers used it, but not not such, such a close-up. Maggie, um, I understand you've been to a Channel 4 screening and never happier than in a darkened room. <laughs> well, actually, yes. I, I, I went to see their new uh, zombie drama brought in from France with subtitles, which uh, is absolutely fascinating. They're going to call it The Returned. It's called uh, Rebound in French. And uh, what I suddenly realised was that this um, very nice looking drama which is quite creepy is actually set in Annecy it was where a Surrey family uh, of Iraqis were shot dead oh, by well, some mystery killer yes so indeed it, and that's never been solved is it that British well, family well at the moment it was last September if you mm. remember so uh, it, it added an extra little frisson I thought for oh. um, British viewers and when will we see that uh, it's coming mid-May ok well let's start today with the appointment of James Harding uh, as we say he's the new head of uh, BBC News um, and because he was an outsider who the BBC have been at pains to say was hired through a completely open process, unlike Lord Hall, of course, who uh, didn't go through a completely open process, but uh, I digress. Anyway, the Guardian's head of news, Dan Sabber, worked with James Harding at the Times. And uh, let's hear from uh, Dan what he thinks reporters at the BBC can expect from their new head. Well, James Harding's a very interesting choice at BBC News. He doesn't have any broadcasting experience, uh, neither, I think, Kerry Thomas is deputy's radio man rather than television. I think by background, so that's quite interesting too. But anyway, but what Harding does bring is a sort of you know big brain, a lot of international experience. Uh, everyone talks about him being you know, speaking Mandarin, Japanese, but also he's got a background in the Financial Times and the Times, sort of geopolitics, geoeconomics, big ideas. People will find him very personal at first. He's a great schmoozer, I guess, and a, a, you know, and a diplomat. Critics or those looking to criticise him, when you run BBC News, it's an incredibly high-profile job. You're totally exposed. You don't have any of the insulation that you have when you're a newspaper editor, uh, the insulation of your owners or your ability to sort of stand back, stay out of the limelight and simply write. You know, your decision-making is exposed. It'll be very easy to be able 
to look at the back book of Times leaders and there's a, that have been critical of the BBC and there's a long back book of such leaders that are critical of executive pay. I think he's on 340 grand a year. I think at Times big on the idea that no one should be paid more than the Prime Minister and he's going to be paid 2.4 times more than the Prime Minister. So you know, I think you could look back and you know all those examples where the Times called for a big reining in of the BBC and I think it will certainly be uh, you know, a bit of a challenge, and I think a source of amusement for those who want to criticise that. You know, this is a man who's you know changed sides, and there aren't that many people who go, or not or surprisingly few people actually go from newspapers to television and news. That the the skills transfer should be much greater, really. Uh, you know, and very few who go from sort of News International over to the BBC. That's for sure. That's Dan Sabber, the man who knows. Uh, Lisa, I'm reminded that after a very trying time at the Times, uh, James Harding was virtually carried out shoulder high by the staff when he left. Given that, at a time of low morale for the BBC, might he be just the man to put in charge? Ooh, I don't know if I don't know if anybody can say that for certain. Um, I mean, Don summed it up very well there, but I think the other really important thing to remember is he worked for a private organisation. The key difference between newspapers and broadcasters is newspapers are partial. They can take mm. whatever mm. political line they, they like. The BBC is bound by um, law to be impartial and balanced. Um, so that'll be fun for somebody who's come from Fleet Street background. As for um, him being carried out in Ohio, he's a really, really popular editor, really nice. He's a very charming person. I remember him when he was a media correspondent back in the early noughties. Yeah. Um, he was great at self-promotion, um, no bad thing, very ambitious. There was a level of criticism. I spoke to several people at the time, particularly old hands who've worked on other papers, who said he was very concerned when he was there about what his friends would think or more particularly people he thought might be his friends. He was very interested in the arts. He didn't have a popular touch. He didn't know what to do with kind of the visceral... He didn't have that visceral judgment that you would get from great editors like Paul Dacre. Yeah, you cannot... Yeah. Whatever you think of his politics, you cannot fault you his judgment. You know where you stand as well. Absolutely. But he goes for... He rules from his heart. You know, if he thinks Middle England, this is wrong for Middle England, he will run a campaign and he will run it and run it and run it. It's like what they call... When I was in the Daily Mail, they called a red meat campaign, completely carnivorous. The Times didn't do that. And I think that was one of the criticisms. The Westminster MP's expenses scandal. James Harding was offered that. that. Yes, it was a stolen CD, but he decided not to go with it. Um, and as we know, it was a mega story. Um, the Telegraph also knew it was stolen, but they took the gamble. They're all ex-Daily Mail people there at the top that no judge in the land would actually, they wouldn't end up in court given that the law had been broken. But in a way, Maggie, that was a very BBC kind of decision, wasn't it? It was indeed. I mean, like Lisa, I worked with or alongside James for a time. I think that it is a good appointment. What has happened at the BBC is that um, they've had two failures actually during the past decade of uh, directors of news and uh, they've run out of road. The other option really was to go for somebody very sound like Peter Horrocks, the head of uh, World Service. But it's quite clear when you when you actually study the Pollard Review that there were an awful lot of rivalries and tensions uh, within that news division and uh, something had to be done about it. I've spoken to one of the very senior people there. I think he was accurately reflecting what the inside view of journalists was and it was his sense that they needed somebody who was vigorous and Harding is, younger than some of the safer hands who could have been put in place. They needed somebody to come in from outside. They needed fresh blood. It doesn't mean that he's going to succeed and it doesn't mean that he can get on top of every single problem, but there is this sense that he has got the intellectual stature and he's got a lot more goodwill than you might suspect. The only thing I would would say against this really is that he's got a huge number of, of problems 
to put right. And he's got, you can see that, that, that even apparently yesterday at the funeral, he was, uh, Tony Hall was there watching how things were done, not knowing exactly how broadcast programmes are made mm. and, the, and the rhythm and the style uh, needed. Though all of those things require a lot of fast learning. Well, let's move on to one of those programmes now because obviously he's getting his feet under the table, but we're not giving him much time to do that. We had the ding-dong over the, the, the chart show and whether Radio 1 will play that anti-Margaret Thatcher song. We're not going to play it either. And just a day later, Panorama broadcast that North Korea programme, um, despite protests from the London School of Economics, whose students were used as cover by the reporter John Sweeney and his crew to get into the country. Uh, Guardian columnist and professor of journalism at City University, Roy Greenslade, has been amongst those who initially supported the BBC, but he now says he's unsure. Earlier today, Media Talk asked him why. I think Tony Hall has a real problem over Panorama. He has to discover why the rules that usually govern such investigations and the use of people did not involve, in this case, written consent. I can totally understand that in extreme cases, verbal consent is enough. But what we're led to believe is that these people weren't even made aware of it until they were on the journey, till they reached Beijing on their way to North Korea. And if this is the case, I think it necessitates a proper investigation at the highest level as to why this was signed off on. and Why, why did it happen? I think he has to get to the bottom of it. Lisa, do you think we have to get to the bottom of it? Well, I have a special interest in this story. My nephew runs, and I'll give him a plug here, a website. He's a 29-year-old and he has um, a special interest in North Korea and he runs a website called nknews.org. And he's been in North Korea several times and I spoke to him about this. And I just think the LSE, FOSS and what Roy is saying there is completely misplaced. Why? Because you can get into North Korea, but you go in through an officially recognised travel guide which is um, system, which is... Um, approved by the yeah. government there you're not really at risk the people who are at risk are the tour guides if you behave in any way outside of what is expected of a polite respectful western tourist you put them in danger and I think that's what was really interesting about the John Sweeney documentary was there he was in a hospital interviewing a doctor obviously there were no patients there it was a showcase yet he was he had the, the tour guides on camera and yeah. he was I mean that's the question yeah. what, what's happened to those tour guides when was the last time you heard of a Western person killed in North Korea? But the BBC flagged it up as being one of the dangerous, most dangerous places most on Earth. Most secretive yeah. and potentially with the nuclear arms, yes. But in terms of, you know, travelling to North Korea as a tourist, it's difficult to get in, but you don't get killed. Maggie, well, did you feel uneasy as you watched it or did you think, wow, this is a great piece of journalism? Well, the problem actually is that it wasn't a particularly great piece of journalism. I don't think it told us masses more than we didn't know. But at the same time, it had a massively good audience for a current affairs programme. And it was incredibly timely at a point when North Korea is, is threatening the South and is also behaving in an extremely belligerent uh, fashion over, over its weaponry. So from a journalistic point of view, if it was not the BBC, we would say that's a very well-timed story. I am concerned about the travel arrangements. As for the students themselves, they're clearly divided about how much they knew, and some of them have turned around and attacked the LSC for, yeah. their, 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 for their slightly, I would say, hysterical uh, response. I do think, though... People do expect very, very high standards from BBC News and Current Affairs and a sense perhaps of them not being 
entirely transparent by only telling people at the point when they're already so far committed that they can't turn back. So given that things have been moving quickly and that there is a row, how well do we think Lord Hall has dealt with it? I thought he was right to be on top of it, but I would have liked to have, I think, seen a bit more rigour at at that point. I mean, the questions that we're answering now ought to have been easily ascertained at the point that he made a statement. You know, when were people told? Were they told in writing? Did they give their consent? And um, it would now appear that that the story is slightly unravelling. So it's a bit of a a grey, messy kind of story at the moment. Well, if he didn't know that these things will come flying at him quick and fast, then he does know that now. Um, Let's move on to some other news. And I'm delighted to say we've been joined by The Guardian's Director of Editorial Legal Services, Jill Phillips. Jill, thanks for dropping in. There have been some amendments to the defamation bill, haven't there? For us who don't understand the complexities, what's been happening? Well, I think uh, I think talking about ding dongs is another ding dong going on. Only this time it's between the uh, the Commons and the the Lords, which is that uh, the Lords back in February introduced a number of amendments to the defamation bill. Some of which were known as the Leveson amendments and were an attempt to hijack some of the Royal Charter things that were going on. But as part of that, they also introduced two other clauses one of which was about corporations suing and the other was about uh, whether local authorities could sue. And they sort of snuck in a bit. Um, They weren't part of any of the drafts that have been around, but both those were issues that the Select Committee, for example, had thought were good ideas. So we spent so much time thinking about the other uh, amendments that these ones were, were either by, rather bypassed until this stage. I think that's right. I think they, the, you know, they just didn't get the attraction that they would have done had they been part of the the old debate that there was on the defamation bill. It all got hijacked by the Putnam amendments, and so it all came when it when when the bill uh, went back to the Commons this week. Uh, everybody suddenly thought, oh, there are these also there are these other amendments which were actually quite good amendments from the media's point of view. We'd quite like them to stay in. And at that, at that point, of course, there was a there was a flurry, and Edward Garnier for the uh, for the coalition for the Tories didn't like it. I, whether that's got anything to do with the the fact that the government are currently you know privatising and putting out to the public sector as many things as possible to private companies, yeah. I don't know. But you one wonders about the motivation behind Garnier suddenly getting so engaged with this. There was then a hearing in the in the in the Commons. The amendment that had been put into the Lords was was rejected, was not passed. But as I understand it, there is now uh, another stab going to be had to put that amendment or those amendments back in when it goes back to the Lords next week. Hence the ding dong, and I think then it goes back to the Commons once more after that. So where we are, where are we at now for those who plough our trade um, as journalists? Should we be worried? Oh no, I don't think. I mean, I don't think in terms of just speaking about the defamation bill. Um, no, I don't think you want to be worried. I mean, it's it's definitely an improvement on where things are at the moment. It's going to make some things clear that the courts have been quite reasonably clear about in the past. For example, that you need to pass a test of a threshold test of serious harm to bring a a libel claim. So if you're a company, you can't just chance your arm. You need to show that you would you would actually have serious damage from a, a news story before you can sue it for, sue for yes, libel. Yes, I mean, that, that the, the serious harm clause applies to 
whether it's you, me or a company who, who wants to sue, they're going to have to show that. What this new amendment does is make it very specific that for a company they've got to, do, they've got to show, I think the wording is uh, substantial. substantial financial harm. You know, there's possibly even, a, with the, the, if the amendment stays in, a higher threshold for a company than for, for an individual. OK, well, we've been, we've been keeping you busy this week because uh, I think also from ACPO there's been a suggestion that we might move to a system where people who, are, who go to court aren't named by newspapers or by media organisations unless they're convicted. Now, I know there have been some concerns about that. What are the, the concerns about that idea? Well, I think I think the proposal that's come out of ACPO this week has been that uh, it shouldn't be the norm that people who are arrested uh, are named when they're arrested. For those who don't know, I should say that ACPO being the Association of Chief Police Officers. Yes, of course. Sorry. Uh, so there is a proposal that, unlike the, the way things are generally at the moment, which is when people are arrested, their name is given out and people know who they are, the, the, the suggestion from ACPO is that you go back to a default position whereby you don't know the name of the person arrested and you probably wouldn't know the name uh, until there was a charge. Um, now, there are some who want to go further than that, as you suggested, which is that you don't name them at all until they've been tried and or convicted, which is a really extreme position. But there is quite a lot of concern even around the ACPO position really originating around the fact that if you don't name someone who's been arrested it gives a lot of opportunity particularly on social media for people to speculate who who it is uh, and quite often wrongly whereas if you have a name then there's certainty about it the other side argue that uh, particularly someone like Chris Jeffries who we may all remember was pretty well done over by the press in the murder case of Joanne Yates. Joanne Yates. That you know, someone like him shouldn't suffer when they may end up not being charged yeah. at all. It seems to me, it's always seemed to me that Chris Jeffries, who was treated badly, no one disagrees with that, had lots of remedies in civil law. He had a remedy in defamation, which he used. He also could, it seems to me, have sued in privacy, which he didn't need to do. And in addition, the, the newspapers were prosecuted for contempt. So there were lots of, of, of things to protect what happened. And I don't think not naming people when they're arrested really is the way to, to deal with that. I mean, there are other issues around contempt of court because contempt of court only starts when someone's arrested. And if you don't know that they've been arrested, then you may actually be able to publish prejudicial material yeah. about them without knowing that they've been arrested. Very quickly, is it likely to go anywhere? Well, as I understand it, it's a suggestion from ACPO. I haven't seen any formal consultation or doing anything more with it, but it is a a suggestion that some judges in another consultation have given some support to. So it it may be a runner. All right, could affect us all, so we'll keep an eye on that. But for now, Jill, many thanks. Before we wrap up part one of our podcast, we have just enough time for a media monkey quiz. So uh, by your buzzers, you two. Who has hinted that their papers could start charging for content? Oh, the Daily Mail and General Trust. Points to you both. What two words explain why Kelvin McKenzie was ejected from the Telegraph after just one blog? Ah, I got you there. I'll give you those two words. Are Alan Hansen. Um, it's now understood that top people at the Telegraph, principally but not exclusively the former Liverpool icon Alan Hansen, objected to sharing the columnist's dugout with the man who did more than most to trash the Hillsborough dead. 
That's actually a scoop by our Roy Greenslade. We haven't heard from him for a while, have we? Um, and you can read more about that on Roy's blog. Try guardian.co.uk forward slash media forward slash Greenslade. And finally, for our media quiz this week, as part of Rupert Murdoch's division of his business, uh, his new entertainment arm will be called what? 21st Century Fox. And how long must Anorux. they have thought about that? Really? I think it's the most brilliant uh, name. I, 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 it's very grabby. Oh, no. It was, it was either going to be that or Pin Code Inc. But I think they decided on 20th Century Fox. It has a better ring. A bit about of glamour. It, doesn't it? I think it's very so. naughty. Hugh. Maggie, Lisa, and Jill, thanks very much. This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, Venezuela's new president. Who is Nicolas Maduro? Russell Brand on Margaret Thatcher. I always felt sorry for her children. Our audiobook review turns to non-fiction with Ahmed Arachidi's account of his time in Guantanamo Bay and a parable of innovation from Vijay Govindarajan and Chris Trimble. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. OK, if you're a consumer of podcasts, the chances are that you'll have heard a few requests for money in the last week or so. Not here at The Guardian, of course. We only ask that you donate your money to the poor. But in the US, there's a long tradition of listener-supported shows and stations that spring from public radio networks. Last month, we heard from the producer Jesse Thorne, whose own network, Maximum Fun, is currently in full pledge drive. But if you're just one programme without a station backing you, where do you turn? Well, Roman Mars, there's a name to conjure with, may have the answer. He raised $170,000 on Kickstarter in 2012, and Helen Zaltzman spoke to him on a recent trip to the States. But before we get into the chat, let's hear a little of his show. My name is Roman Mars. I'm the host and creator of 99% Invisible, a radio show and podcast about architecture and design. Without all the beeps, without sonic feedback, all of your modern conveniences would be very hard to use. I mean, try using your telephone without the beeps, and it's really confusing. You're lost immediately. Did I get it? No, I didn't get it. The number's there, but I didn't hear it. I used to get it physically with the rotary. So, Roman, the question that I'm always asked as a podcaster is, can you make money from podcasting? Now, you're this uh, shining beacon of somebody who has made (laughs) money from podcasting. How did you swing that? The most significant thing was I did a Kickstarter campaign for the third season of the show. Mm -hmm. And I never conceived of the show as having seasons. It's just an ongoing effort. But because Kickstarter is sort of organized into uh, projects, I just sort of created, uh, it seems like the third season, and so I did a third season Kickstarter. I tried to raise about $40,000 to help me and pay a part-time producer. We ended up raising over four times that amount. Wow. And so that pays for most of it. But from then, you know, like the advertising and underwriting revenue has gone up too. So like that, if those all sell out for the next year, which right now we're pretty fully booked, that'll be about the same amount of money in advertising as well. So the presence of the Kickstarter money encouraged the commercial money? Yeah, I think there's there's a thing about sort of money begets money in a, in a weird way and there's a, there's a sense that a person is seems more likely to give you money on the street if you look like you don't need it desperately <laughs> versus like someone who des- desperately does and so this is the same like you prove that you can make it you prove that you can 
do little things. I, I think it's completely perverse, but it just seems to be true. People offer you more money once you already have it. So what is it, do you suppose, about your podcast, but also podcasts in general, that inspire people to give you money when technically they don't have to? Yeah, <laughs> not at all. I think it's a great medium for connection. I think people feel really connected to the show. I think that that's something that we've had in public radio is the, is they pride themselves on having a tight connection with the audience. But I think podcasts have it beat. I try to create like kind of an intimate show. I have a good sort of, I feel like I have this good rapport with the audience. And then the reason why the Kickstarter campaign did so well was I think that they were giving me back pay for the two years that I did it without it, yeah. honestly. I found that as well. Some people feel guilty about having had that much free entertainment that they'll buy things that we put out even if they don't particularly want them because they feel obligated but this is usually adults it's very rarely listeners who are under their mid-twenties yeah I don't I don't know what the range of mine was I know that I'm not cannibalizing con you know like uh, givers to public radio in general like because I had a lot of international backers so one of the things that happened was I was trying to plan if I was going to do one of these cell phone get ten dollars by texting 99 to a certain text number or whatever well like people do charity appeals. exactly exactly so I was going to set up something like that and I had the, the backing to do it through PRX but I put on Twitter you know, how should I raise money? I might do this or I might do a Kickstarter. And the international community said, we can't give if you do a cell phone thing. And so we want you to do a Kickstarter. And ended up a good portion of my my earnings were from the like from people from Europe and, and Australia. And because you'd been doing the show for free already for two years when you launched your campaign, were people angry that you were soliciting money when they'd been used to you just impoverishing yourself by making it not at all if you do a giving campaign correctly they consider it a gift to them for giving them the opportunity to give to you it's a weird thing but i know this as a as a consumer of independent media whether it be bands or books or zines or whatever there's nothing that makes me feel better than giving money to an artist i enjoy and so allowing people the opportunity and being bold enough to ask for it Actually, people really appreciate it. So what what was the biggest uh, single donation that you had? The... $10,000. $10,000 from one person. Well, what, do you, what do you do for them? Give them a lap dance or something <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> I would. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, 10000 was from a, a company who I did underwriting for. So mm-hmm. I got to give them a cut rate underwriting. I went and spoke at their company. And I also got a 10000 private donation from a woman named Debbie Moman, who's she's just dedicated to design and design thought and education. And she she's the one that I did a side bet where I wanted to get 5,000 backers no matter what they gave. And that if I did get over 5,000, she would give the, the show $10,000. That motivated way more than what she gave. You know, that's right. what was so great about it. So she leveraged that into all this widespread support. So yeah, so 10000 was the most, and the lowest was a dollar. And I guess people wouldn't do it for radio, which is uh, you know, the other strand of your professional app. Well, I mean, I, I go on the air twice a year to, to beg on the radio, because we have pledge drives in public radio in the U.S., but you're giving to the station in that case, and then the station uses that money to buy the programs to play them, and that's how it operates. It's all like... 800 independent stations make up the public radio network so when i go on the air and pledge that's one of my i, I kind of like doing it i think it's fun to motivate people to give so now that you've achieved the uh, 
thing that we all thought impossible, particularly in Britain, to uh, make a podcast into a goldmine. What's hmm. What's the next challenge for you? Well, one is is like you have to just figure out if the Kickstarter thing was a fluke and if you can sustain it. It's not going to last forever. Do you feel like you could do it again? Would it be diminishing returns to try if in two years you need the finances again? I think it would be diminishing and I wonder what the perception like I've been thinking about what to do next and if you do a Kickstarter a second Kickstarter and it's lower than the first Kickstarter, does that send a weird signal? And I I worry about that a little bit. But I've been trying to figure out another way because direct contributions they're going to be part of the ongoing sort of support of the show but I have to figure out how to diversify so that it's a little bit more advertising a little bit of that I would go back to Kickstarter for a project again like if I were to do a video series or a book or like launch other podcasts or do you know do something like that's something a little bit different if you came back for ongoing support every year I I think you'd wear people out Mm. I think a little bit of that like I said before that the they were giving me back pay I think they were also giving me like here's your shot kid go do it and we don't want to hear from you again <laughs> it's like that was the that was the amount of money that's what it said to me so how long would your kickstarter money which was about what $170,000 yeah so how long could that keep you going I have another job in radio so it would keep me going a long time so I pay someone pay myself a little bit out of it and then I pay reporters and producers and that's most of it did you buy yourself a present to congratulate yourself for smashing this I, Kickstarter I, record. I, I bought a suit. Because people who wear suits then get given money by commercial <laughs> organizations. There was one I was like, I was debating whether or not I get, get the suit. It was during the Kickstarter. And after we hit the first, the, the Kickstarter goal in 24 hours, I was like, I'm going to buy that suit. That was Roman Mars talking to Helen Zaltzman. And his show 99% Invisible is available on SoundCloud, as is Helen's own show, Answer me this. Are you an aspiring journalist or writer? The Guardian International Development Journalism Competition is your chance to win an assignment to Africa, Asia or South America. You'll write for The Guardian about the global development issues that face the area you visit. All you need to do is submit a short essay on one of the 12 diverse themes. You can find all the information you need at guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. Enter now to win the work experience of a lifetime. Visit guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. The deadline is midnight on Sunday the 12th of May. Terms and conditions apply. Time for the telly now with Noshi Nick Barlan. A lot of panel shows on the telly at the moment, and Noshi and I'm told they've been getting on your nerves. Well, Friday nights, I mean, you have this now very cheap, easy schedule of uh, the same 10 comedians rotating around the same boring panel shows and they and they keep coming I mean I get that they're very cheap but I mean it is tired I mean have I got news for you last week with Brian Blessed was just so tedious I think even <laughs> Paul Merton and Ian Hislop have lost interest Paul Merton just spends half the time now looking disinterested which is his whole shtick but I think he genuinely means it now. He's bored of himself and that show. <laughs> He's bored of himself. He's bored of himself. And um, 8 out of 10 cats does countdown. What even is that? Like, it just, it was embarrassing. It was genuinely, I don't understand. Is the problem chemistry? Because of how, have I got news for you? So much of it is about the presenter and mm. it changes. If you build a, a programme like that on chemistry and then the chemistry changes every week... 
it must be really difficult for everyone involved. Well, I agree to some extent, but I also don't think the satire is as sharp as it was, which is bizarre because, you know, Ian Hislop is like this raging terrier, like snapping at the heels of power, but it it just seems to have lost its bite, I think. It, they're more indulgent now. They're happy to go off on these flights of fancy and ignore the token woman and all the rest of it it just it just feels stale the genre endures though and of course mm. there's a new program um another panel show that is being uh, developed sweat the small stuff yeah with uh, nick grimshaw and he of radio um, one he of radio one indeed and i think he's very likable but i mean the problem with now doing like this young trendy urban version of a panel show is that is it really a problem? I was going to say it alienates me because I'm neither young nor trendy or urban. I feel that it's kind of a cheap use of talent. And you talked about the token woman. Um, do you feel that? I, I, I ask you that because I have a friend who's a female stand-up comedian mm. and she absolutely hates those programmes. Mm. She says they are such boys' clubs. And when she's spoken to other comedians who, who've been on there... yeah. She says some of the females have yeah, come off re- almost traumatised I mean, and feeling they've been bullied. On How I Got News For You, the women, it's often cut and they, they just look really blank and insipid and quite stupid, actually. And you know these women aren't and, you know, quite a few often now refuse to go on. But the same with 8 Out of 10 Cats. They find like a couple of women that they get on with and they'll bring them back. I mean, they have Mel of Mel and Sue back a couple of times, but they use her as this kind of bizarre old auntie figure, like she's a bit weird and a bit surreal. And then they've got the lady from Countdown as a, you know, bit of totty. It's not pleasant for women. So many hopes to sweat the small stuff or you won't be watching? Uh, I will watch because I like Grimshaw. Just because you have to, because it's your job. Well, because I like Grimshaw, but um, I don't hold high hopes. I'd like to be proven wrong. I just think that, you know, it's, they need to find something else to fill how schedules with let's get your hopes up then what about this ben elton sitcom the right way (laughs) hopes up hopes down oh okay um it's about a middle manager in health and safety played by david haig who has made quite a wonderful career of doing those quite stroppy angry men who acts like a cipher for elton i think but it's quite mr bean in parts sort of relies on those cliched characters like the dopey posh bird, the sassy black cleaner. It's it's not very sophisticated. It sounds like an office version of Ben Elton's last sitcom. Didn't he do that police sitcom? Was it The Thin Blue Line? The Thin Line? Blue Line, yes. And it's got two, and it's got the uh, one of the actors, I've forgotten her name now. She's back in, in this one as well with Haig. It, do, it is a bit like that, but in health and safety. Without the uniforms. Without the uniforms. <laughs> with staplers instead. I mean, it's hard to see, because it's not part of my generation, how he was once this amazing sort of alternative comedy figure. Oh, well, it was my he generation. Ones, didn't he? He did like the it young ones, He was my generation. I can tell you who was. What? I mean, he was, he was just danger, danger personified at one time. Uh, well, this but, is very safe. It's the complete opposite. It's very safe and quite dull and broad and a bit blah. There was probably a sad moment in his life when he picked up the copy of the Daily Mail and realised they were being nice about him. <laughs> and that was when it turned, I think. It was when he realised, uh, when he wrote the musical, they probably started being nice to him. But up until then, he was just a hate figure. Yeah, I think even now it's probably more the case that he's been a bit forgotten. I mean, I think he'd rather have been the hate figure than just be completely forgotten. Because now, I mean, before this, did anyone give a jot about Ben Elton and what he was up to? So will he, will he want to be remembered for the right way? 
Doesn't look like it. If he did, then he'd stop working, so I don't think he needs the money. I certainly don't think he needs <laughs> the money, no. All right, Bill Bailey, he probably doesn't need much money either, but he keeps working and uh, it remains popular. What's Bill Bailey's Jungle Hero? Uh, that's a programme where he gets to explore the life of a naturalist, travel to Borneo, all these nice exotic places, and explore his obsession with orangutans. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a gentle sort of travelogue, nature programme style thing. It's quite a nice Sunday evening sort of watch. I have nothing against Bill Bailey. I think it's nice for him to jump out and do things that sort of match his bird watcher look. I think he'd do that really well, though, as well. He does. He, he seems yeah, like he a really good does. bloke, but he's also really clever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which comes out in this. Um, he holds his own with David Attenborough, which is nice. We ended on a good note because you didn't like the others, but at least you like Bill Bailey. So it's good to end on a high. But for now, Nasheen, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Maggie Brown, Lisa O'Carroll, Dan Sabah, Roy Greenslade, Helen Zaltzman, Roman Mars, Jill Phillips and Nosheen Iqbal. My name's Hugh Muir. The other guilty party was producer Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.